Hi, and welcome back to our podcast, Captivated Audience. This is The Swedbank Case. My name is Sam Sheen, and I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Maddie Lundberg. Today's podcast is going to be looking at transaction monitoring and customer risk-based technology. So Marie, just at a high level to set the scene, what were the comments of the regulator? Oh, Sam, uh, it's good to be back and actually covering one of my absolute favorite topics when it comes down to the AML regulation, transaction monitoring and doing that risk-based. So yes, the FSA had quite the opinion, I would say, uh, on systems and tools in place for Swedbank. So of course, the FSA states, obviously, that Swedbank has an automating system for transaction monitoring. And of course, that they need to have it because one being one of the largest banks in Sweden with over more than 4 million customers, you cannot depend on anything like Excel or, or whatever. You need to have an automatic uh, system in place. Normally, when we see cases such as a handful of ones I've read out of the United States, the criticism is about people adjusting the sensitivity or the thresholds to try and reduce the number of false positives generated. That wasn't necessarily the case here, though, was it? Not, not written out explicitly. No, definitely not. But I think the problem here is more that it comes back to data, data quality, and also, of course, that they use the systems on a group level. The system that was used for the Swedish banking was used for all the customers as well. So I I think that the problem here might be that it was not business specific enough. Interesting. And you mentioned the word data uh, sometime earlier this year. Yes, one of my favorite favorite words. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, it's fine. And Anna Isel of uh, Deutsche Bank was on a webinar with me in January, and she was talking about an AI project she had set up to look at risks around the behavior of high-risk customers in private banking. And it was really interesting at the time because it really what surrounded that was the data that's fed into the tool. I mean, how big was the challenge for Swedbank? Well, the FSA, of course, highlighted a few areas within the report uh, from the it, from their investigation. And you were mentioning the uh, high-risk customers, which, of course, were the focus here as well. So the FSA focused on the political exposed persons, also on the private banking customers as well. And this was for the mother bank, for the Swedish banking branch in, in this case. So let me move on to the next bit then. Marie, I don't know if you found this, but this is the first time I've seen a regulator properly work through both what happened, their analysis of the outcome, and then what their expectations are around the use of a transaction monitoring tool. And when they begin their explanation, they sort of take everybody through the main features of a transaction monitoring system. And they start off by then describing the fact that Swedbank had 12 active scenarios. But how were they using them? Well, these 12 scenarios, um, there were also four more specific ones for identify transaction done by PEPs. So they were, they were morely using it on um, a threshold basis. The detection system or the monitoring system was more of generating alerts only if the transaction amount was above a specific threshold. You know, coming from from my background, being able to both build and implement and you know use uh, technology for transaction monitoring, we know that that is a it's a big switch to go from being a rule based environment to actually do a risk based environment. And ultimately, if you read if you read the FSA's report and you analyze what they are actually saying, they are really firm on that they should have done it a little bit more on a risk-based approach. For some reasons, the deficiencies that they have definitely pointed out was that the lack of the, the customer risk classification model was not was not uh, was not based on all the different risks or the customer risk factors that was identified within the, the bank's uh, general risk assessment. 
which actually translates into if you have identified, I don't know how many, like a thousand different risk factors in your risk assessment, in your general risk assessment. But then again, you just implement a handful of them in your risk scoring model or your risk classification model. Well, then you need to either, either <laughs> you make sure that those are the sufficient ones, the ones you have implemented, and the other risk factors are then dealt with in a different manner. In this case, the customer profile, the customer risk profile was not used while monitoring the transactions. Well, let's break it down a bit because this sounds a bit like a phenomenon I describe as a confluence of risk, which is mm. you have these risk factors all start building up operationally, which then compounds the problem and makes it even worse than it already was. So they, they start off by saying that the thresholds that were set for its screening depended upon which segment a customer sort of was classified in, and that was mainly based on a customer's monthly deposits or the assets that they had in the bank. And then customers with larger deposits or assets would have higher set controls. I'm sorry, but in this case, you need to take a lot more different risk factors. Just just going back to uh, that lovely report from the European Banking Authority on the guidelines on the risk factor, the risk factor guidelines, and I do know, Sam, that you have done some work on that as well. Going back to those, you actually get a handbook on, you know, the most common risk factors. And of course, origins of funds and, you know, the transaction behavior is definitely one one aspect to look upon in order to get the holistic view on, you know, the customer risk factor or risk score. But it's not sufficient enough. And also, of course, that is detected and, and put in writing black and white in the FSA's report. And then they move on about those four scenarios you mentioned earlier, because I remember uh, scenarios were based on stuff like whether or not the customer was a PEP or whether it was a private banking customer, but then they then applied it across all the customer groups. Well, that's rule-based. Again, that's back to being rule-based. Then, then you're not using either the technology, uh, you're not using all the lovely data that you could probably squeeze out of from your systems in order to really get a solid risk customer profile. And, and I think that also when it comes down to what the FSA said, they had... Well, then they found that, of course, the monitoring tools that they had been using were not as efficient as they should have been. And there's something about lookbacks, if I understand the report correctly, and forgive me because Google Translate had to give me a hand on the regulator's report, but it seems to suggest that the regulator noticed the transaction methodology, in other words, the methodology for um, monitoring the transactions didn't allow for a comparison between the scenarios and then the evolving customer's transactional behavior. So in other words, they couldn't sort of watch any sort of evolving behavior. And as we know, one of the areas of concern in this case was this burst of transactions over a couple of years. Well, I think that ultimately, that's why you need to use technology and that's why you need to make sure that your legacy system is is, a, is able to supply you with the good data quality and the data points in order to do that. Coming back to implemented technology and especially uh, transaction monitoring systems, you need to have different kind of scenarios for different kind of purpose, different type of clients. If you're using thresholds, then you need to have different thresholds for different types of periods in time, different kind of other risk factors that might be underlying. In order to just have 12 specific scenarios, uh, I would say that the, the numbers might be sufficient, I don't know, but it, it doesn't apply to be really risk-based. What I would like to say with that is like you need to be able to detect deviations and variations in your customer's behavior. Just just look upon this type of scenario we we are right now. There's a pandemic. 
people are now acting differently within their transactions. The buying patterns are different. The saving patterns are might be different. The, the volatility of the stock markets is absolutely, of course, then a part of, of your different type of patterns that for detection. So your detection system and your monitoring system needs to be able to adapt quickly into the change of behavior. And therefore, I mean, why we are discussing uh, words like AI, or I would love to more use the word machine learning, is, is able to train the system in order to detect and therefore, you know, subsequently adding to a different kind of scenarios. So I would say that it, it's not implement and go, it's implement, verify, checking the data points, and also always, always fine tune it. So it's always a work in progress. You know, it, it's very interesting observation though you make about the scenarios because the regulator says there was a risk assessment done in 2018 and the bank itself acknowledged it needed new scenarios implemented into its transaction monitoring system. But on the other hand, there have been regulators who talk about scenario governance. They've said, you know, there has to be control over who can change the scenarios, who can adjust the thresholds. You know, it's like the joke Matt McGuire, who was on our podcast made the other day, when the barn is on fire, and somebody runs and asks for help and the person says, go check the policies and procedures. You know, is that a problem in and of itself? Because we talk about needing to be agile and adjust thresholds, even now during the pandemic, but everyone's so frightened to show there's governance over the controls. That might take a long time. Yes. Well, coming back to, you know, the state of being agile and, and you, you need to be able to, to do that and you need to be able to verify and, of course, you know, verify your different models that you're using. And there is a, there's a whole different sector of course, on model risk control, model risk management uh, in the Swedish, the Swedish AML uh, legislation. Yeah. So you have, you have the, you have the uh, opportunity of, you know, really changing your systems, changing your, your, uh, your levels or your thresholds. But then again, it needs to be verified and it needs to be authorized and all that. I do know that a lot of detection systems or monitoring system comes with what we call a sandbox which is absolutely a, a way to, to implement and, and try different scenarios with different variables and different parameters and different data sources in order to, you know, get a nice outcome and, and or an expected behavior, for instance. And I would say that using sandboxes in these times might be, you know, the way forward uh, in order to test them, try them to, to then deploy them into production. So I would say it comes back again to, you know, what kind of setup do you have? What kind of people are working in your monitoring team? Do you have your own data scientist or are you just literally, you know, equipped with two people monitoring and, and going, okay, this was a false positive. This was a false positive. Close, 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 close. That kind of behavior and that kind of systems, I mean, they are so 2009. So, so true. And perhaps the most startling comment that comes from the regulator for people like you and I was it says, an effective monitoring system requires that you obtain enough customer knowledge about the individual customer and that you use this for continuous follow-up on transactions. Yes, that's where the customer risk profile comes in play. So you need to have done your homework. You need to have actually implemented a sort of like a, a risk scoring tool. Uh, we do know that the banks are really good in, in calculating the risk score for credits and risk score for the other different areas. But in this case, you need to have an AML risk score, of course. That could be an, a unique number. It could be a unique value. As long as it's individually done, it's on each and every specific customer. And I do know that, um, you know, technology in this case, there are a lot of vendors out there. There is a lot of good, solid tools that actually can do this. 
have to admit, I love this regulator's report about not thinking about your AML controls across the continuum of risk management. And I bore people to tears when I talk about this. I, I know people are like, look, we have to transaction monitor and they go off and do that project and somebody else is risk grading somewhere else. And this regulator says one of the main purposes of obtaining the customer information that nature and purpose of the business relationship is for you use it to follow up on customers' activities and your continuous monitoring of the transactions. And that's probably the first regulator I've seen to put that down in writing so bluntly. Well, yes, the use of Swedish language. First of all, I think that the, this report is beautifully written when it comes down to, to the wording as well. It's actually in there black and white. Yes, it's out there in, in plain writing. Even as we're recording this, I can hear the twittering of our friends who are working with some really interesting AI and unsupervised machine learning companies all going, yeah. I could fix that. I could fix that. <laughs> well, the thing is the technology is there and it's it's now technology these days are intuitive. It's easy. It, it comes with, you know, lovely dashboards that, you know, makes, makes everything visible. But then again, we still, we come down to one of the biggest problems of all and with anybody who has been working in an implementation project knows it's data quality, it's data points, it's, it's gathering all that data in together in, in different type of formats, and then of course getting, getting the, the system set up correctly. Okay, so I want to talk about then how the customer risk profile controls they had feeds in, but before I do that, I do know rather informally that this bank tried very hard to get its transaction monitoring tools right. But I think something that would resonate with people listening is how hard it is to get one of those projects off the ground, particularly when you're trying to implement it group-wide. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge, I would say. Just to touch upon that a little bit, who is actually the one in charge? Who, who is the one to align all the different departments that needs to be part of a big project as implementing a, a new technology tool? We do know there might be some contradiction between the data scientist and the compliance part, uh, department or whatever, or, or just the business lines. Um, it, it comes back to, to you know, being able to really understand the purpose of why are we implementing this system? Why are we using all that data? Can we do it? Do we have, uh, are we in breach between GDPR? Are we doing this or doing that? Can we really use that source? But coming down to, to this, the, the FSA's findings, you really need to step up your transaction monitoring tools to a different level. And interestingly, they do speak more generally at the start of their decision about broader transactional activity as a whole in the Baltics, where they talk about going beyond just the individual customer, and they make observations about bursts of activity, because there appeared to be a couple of years where the transactions were just off the charts. So I'm not sure what that would mean in terms of the transaction monitoring. You know, they're saying focus on the individual customer, but it was actually a group of customers within a particular region that was largely responsible for that enormous burst. If you keep your KYC forms in a hard copy in a drawer or in a safe, then it's quite hard to use in your detection monitoring system, I would say. <laughs> we will talk about some of those things that happened for sure in the next podcast. So let's move to the customer risk profiles. Hmm. The, the regulator holds no punches here and says, there's no scenario you're using in this monitoring tool that shows the customer's risk class has taken into account. I mean, is that a common thing you're building in when you implement tools? 
Yeah, because that's the backbone of everything. If you don't know what kind of customers you're dealing with, it's hard to segment your customers, uh, divide them into different customer base. And, and But also, you know, due to the risk that they are actually then, the inherent risk might be very high. But then again, residual risk might also be quite high because your customer might change their uh, behavior during your time with the customer. In the EBA's risk factor guideline, one mm. of the things that tickles me a bit is there's a lot of stuff about KYC. And then we get to the transaction part and the ongoing <laughs> activity. And it's remarkably short relative mm. to the KYC side. There seems to have been historically a real struggle by regulators in giving guidance, explain how customer risk assessment feeds in or should feed in then to how you formulate transaction monitoring controls, right? So we talk about PEPs, Mm. right? Enhanced due diligence, and you have to do more frequent monitoring. That's obviously got to be the tool, right? And that's one of the other findings this regulator makes is it wasn't there. It wasn't there. That's, that's, that's true. But also, since they didn't have all the risk factors aligned or part of the risk classifying model, they actually missed the target. There's no point collecting all that KYC, doing that risk assessment. Unless you use it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is such a great kind of one-on-one class through this Mm. regulator's report on what what to look out for. And I wish there'd there'd been some more analysis, actually, in the Clifford Chance report, because despite the fact it's done all this analysis on SWIFT statements and picked up where transactions were happening, and you'll hear in the KYC podcast, we talk about circular transactions and the use Mm. of wallet companies and all that. There's no real resonating of the point around this disconnect between why you're risk assessing your customers and then how that's supposed to inform transaction monitoring. Unfortunately, not. That's that's uh, my conclusion. I do know that there are some banks that are way ahead. They, they are using technology, that they have implemented good, solid systems, and they do really work hard on these on these cases. But it comes back to, again, the problems of, of aligning things. And I think that how are you organized? What kind of people do you have in the team? What kind of, coming back to the data points as well, what do you have? What kind of options do you have? What kind of opportunities do you have? Because the obligations, they are there. It's amazing. You know, there's so many aspects we could cover and we don't have time during this podcast. For example, we could have talked about the correspondent banking transaction monitoring. Oh, yes. Well, let's do, let's, let's do that, but in another podcast. Absolutely. So I hope you'll join us for part three of our SWED Bank series. Again, if you have any suggestions you'd like to make about topics we should cover in your podcast, or even if you'd like to participate, perhaps you are a transaction monitoring guru and you'd like to add your two cents feel free to reach out to us at the website captivatedaudience.eu or simply reach out to us on LinkedIn. Have a great day and stay safe.